Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Ready for war. It's not a misspelling, don't worry. Uh, Ruddy is actually a really fun word in Scripture. And so I'm going to use it a little today as we go through. But uh, there's a subtitle, A Study in Leadership Readiness. What we've been going through here at Ellerslie is called discipleship. And nine weeks is not an exhaustive discipleship. It's a starter package for discipleship. The Holy Spirit is truly the one who disciples us and takes from what is Christ, the Word of God, and brings it to us. And yet God chooses to utilize us as the church to bring discipleship to others. In other words, even though it is the Holy Spirit that disciples, we are the tool that he uses uh, through which he does his discipleship work. And so those of us that have gone through nine weeks of this are very sensitized to the importance of this. But many of you would ask the question, even of your own soul, am I really ready to do this work? Am I ready to bear the name of Christ well? And that's part of what we want to address, is there's two degrees of readiness. One is we're ready to be trained, we're ready to be built, we're ready to be malleable to the Spirit to train us and make us ready for that next tier, which is to lead, to actually take the helm in the church of Jesus Christ and to be the one exhorting, preaching, teaching, and doing that discipleship work. And so there's two different dimensions. At Ellerslie, we typically would refer to them as no-visionaries and missionaries. No-visionaries are the novice ones that are being trained in the pattern of Scripture to then become the sent ones or the missionaries. And so we're going to go through that process, and our name for this is Ruddy for War. I I like the title a lot, by the way. An introduction... Uh, Two key questions about David. This is King David. Uh, In these questions, even 3,000 years later, because that's how long ago David was around. Isn't that an amazing thought? 3,000 years ago. These questions about David are still the questions that define the readiness of a leader today. And so I'm going to just lay the questions out there, and then we'll answer them throughout the message. Question number one. Why was David willing to deliver bread and cheese, even though he had been anointed king over Israel? And so here's, here's a possible question or possible answer that could pop into your, your mind. Was he not confident in his position? The guy was anointed king. And so when his father asked him to deliver bread and cheese, what should he say? Father, you deliver the bread and cheese. That's a direct command from the king of Israel. I mean, come on, does David not know his position? Was he not confident in his position? Huh. Question number two, why did David pick up five smooth stones instead of one. So here's a potential answer. Did he not have confidence that one smooth stone was enough with which to slay Goliath? So he drew four more. I'm not exactly sure if one will be sufficient. This guy's big. So the answers to those two questions actually will help you understand 
how leadership works and leadership readiness works. David was a ready leader when he delivered that bread and cheese and when he chose five stones. And whatever David was doing in that situation, we need to see cultivated in our life. So let's begin session one, the ruddy shepherd boy. Now, I have a, a message, one of my favorites, called the return of ruddy shepherd boys. So yes, I might, might be trying to stick a little of that in this message just because I love it so much. And we didn't get it this semester either. And yet this is a little different. So uh, now I have a subtitle for this session. It's called The Sign That the King Has Arrived. You know that when Jesus came to this earth, there was a sign? And it was actually spoken, ironically, to shepherds. And it was, this is the sign. So how do you know when the king has shown up? How do you know? Well, now remember who I asked the questions about. Two questions about David, the rightful king. When the king arrives, how will you know? Okay, see, I'm setting a stage here. So the ruddy shepherd boy, the sign that the king has arrived. The arrival of majesty. When, when majesty arrives in the camp, what is the sign? And the angel said to them, speaking to the shepherds, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Ironically, in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. I, I should have paused it there and gone dot, 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 and then baited you to say, huh, do you guys remember what the sign is? You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. You shall find this majesty wrapped in weakness, in peasantry, and laid in a feeding trough. That's how you will know it is the king that has been sent from above. Uh, that's not the normal sign that any of us would read. You know, if we're thinking signs, we're thinking fireworks, we're thinking, I mean, the angel chorus does fit, I have to admit, but not to shepherds. That, that's... That's the lowly in Israel. Speak to the kings, the priests. Let them know. Blow the trumpet. And yet, this is how you will know that majesty has arrived. So remember the two questions. Why did David deliver bread and cheese? How did he arrive in the camp? That is not to be overlooked. David arrived in the camp of Israel, the rightful king, delivering bread and cheese. He came as a servant. Don't miss it. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, uh-huh, for he was but a youth and, oh, there's our word, ruddy and of a fair countenance. Uh, Dan McConaughey gave me a gift, and it's, uh, he, he's always, he's in charge of our young preachers, so we have these young preacher nights, and his statement, his motto is, always be ready, always be ready. He'll call on one of the young preachers, they need to be ready at any moment to preach, Right, So then he, he has this t-shirt that goes, and it says, always be ready. So then he gave me one that says, always be ready. Uh, I should have worn that today. That would have, I don't know how the red would have looked with this. but <laughs> See, Goliath looks out at David, and he sees something, and he disdains it. What does he see? He sees but a youth. He sees a shepherd boy, and what kind of shepherd boy is it? A ruddy one. Okay, now, when you hear the word ruddy, it actually just means red, okay? And David's countenance, his complexion, whatever it was, there was red in it, okay? So I'm not sure if, you know, it was, you know, the freckled-faced thing, red hair. I'm not exactly sure. However, he was a fair countenance, too. He was actually a good-looking guy, so that isn't to say anything negative about him. He just was red, okay? Now, what's interesting is in the Hebrew culture, red symbolizes something. You know what red is? The word in Hebrew is Adam. 
Do you recognize that one? Adam. It's the name of a man. It also means red. Adam means of the earth, red. You see, there is a red of the earth, earthy. You know another name for red? Listen closely. Edom. Edom, Adam. Red, Esau is his name. And he came out hairy all over like a garment. And his hair was red. Esau was red. He's, uh, they're a symbol of the firstborn, which has been rejected of God. God rejects the first. I'm not exactly sure how to explain it other than just say he does. Adam was rejected. The last Adam, Jesus. The second is accepted. And then you have you know, uh, everything from Cain, Abel. Which sacrifice does he receive? He receives the second. He rejects the first. The second, ironically, Abel was a shepherd. You see, it's the second that he receives. Then you have Ishmael, Isaac. Which one does he receive? The second. Esau, Jacob. The first is red. The second one he receives. And so you could say, ready, ready doesn't sound like a good term. Well, David's ruddy. David is the second king of Israel. And his redness, his ruddiness is not the same as the first. You see, Adam comes in the ruddiness of earth. He's earthy. But there is a man that comes from heaven. And he is also clothed in red. Did you know that as a believer you are clothed in red? And you must be ruddy for war? And yet it's a different sort of red. It's not a red of this earth. It is a red that descends from heaven. You were of the descendancy of Adam, but you were born again. You died in the death of Christ, and you've been raised again in the resurrection of Christ. So that now you are clothed in a new red, the same red that David showed up with on that day. And it's a red of heart passion. We could call it the red of the spirit. It's a redness of blood. Not of earth, but of blood. Is there not a cause? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare defy the armies of the living God? And that little shepherd boy showed up in the valley of Elah, red. How did Jesus fight against Goliath? His Goliath, the power of sin. He came clothed in red. Is there a better picture for it? When he came against Goliath, he was clothed in red. Is that an amazing thought or what? So the event. When? Near 1,020 BC. Location, ancient Judea in the small country of Israel. The exact spot. We actually know the exact spot. The valley of Elah amidst the craggy pasture lands of Judah. The scene. The peaceful country of Israel has been invaded by the noisome Philistines. All the men of war have been called to battle. On one side of the valley stands the mighty Philistine army in battle position, ready to fight, breathing threats and invectives. On the other side of the valley stand the Israelites, under the rulership of King Saul, the first king of Israel, with swords at the ready, but hearts that are melting with fear. For the past 40 days they have stood this way, in position but without confidence of victory. Every day an emissary of the Philistines named Goliath, a 12 and a a half-foot warrior giant. I know some of your Bibles say nine feet. However, that depends on which cubit you choose. I happen to choose the long cubit to make him really big. <laughs> so named Goliath, who strolls out into the open space in the valley between the two enemy camps and shouts a very specific challenge to the Israelites. Every day he moves closer, boldly attempting to provoke a soldier of Israel to rise up and fight him. For he says, send your best man and fight me. If I win, you all become our slaves. But if your man wins, we will all become your slaves. But this test of Israel's strongest and bravest has only proven one thing over the past 40 days. And that is that there is no one in and amongst the mighty of Israel that has the moxie to face Goliath in hand-to-hand combat. 
and let the fate of Israel rest upon his ability. King Saul, who, by the way, would be called the giant of Israel. He was described as head and shoulders above all Israel. He was Israel's Goliath. And yet, King Saul, the warrior giant of Israel, himself has proved a coward and unwilling to step forward and defend his people and their dignity. So now let's reach the defining moment. On the 41st day, 40 days have been completed, and on the 41st day, a ruddy shepherd boy, likely in his young teens, arrives in the camp of Israel to deliver bread and cheese to his older brothers and to check on the status of the war. He overhears the boast from Goliath. This ruddy shepherd boy's response changes the course of a nation and sets a pattern for the construct of great manhood throughout the course of history. Recognizing the ready warrior. Now, I could have said ruddy, but that would have been too predictable. Ready and ruddy in this message, you're going to notice, are actually interchangeable. You see, ruddiness means of the Spirit, of the heart of God, in stride with God, you are clothed in what he is doing. He demonstrates the humility and chutzpah of the Holy Spirit. Now, a few weeks ago, we gave a message on the Holy Spirit, and it was called humility and chutzpah. So, one who is walking in stride with the one who is marked by humility and chutzpah, the Holy Spirit, is going to demonstrate both humility and chutzpah. Chutzpah is a good Yiddish word for oomph, growl, moxie, audacity, chutzpah. The return of ruddy shepherd boys. So let's look at how the world looks at ruddy shepherd boys. Those three words. You take ruddy, and it means red, the color of the earth. Earthy. Shepherd, it's the lowliest occupation. Boys, men in a state of immaturity and unreadiness. Well, that's pathetic. Yeah, well, we don't want the return of that to Christianity. It seems like we have enough of that. You see, what's interesting is there is a red of the earth, and much of Christianity has been clothed in that. We have a redness of this earth. We function and do our Christianity in the flesh, in the strength of our own hand, and that which we have in our own possession, our own pockets. What are we doing? That's not how you get anything done. You can't take down Goliath that way. You see, there's another red, and that's the red we need to be walking in. So let's say it again. No, we need the return of ruddy shepherd boys. Not like that first list. This list. Ruddy, the twice born, those clothed in blood, the men of life, men with a fiery heart after God, men of the fellowship of the burning heart. Shepherds, men built to protect, preserve, and spend their life for that which is under their care. Could you imagine if this returned? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, world turned on its head. And how about boys? Not immaturity, not unreadiness, but boyish hearts of faith. Men of child wonder, men who simply believe their God to be precisely who he says he is and sure to perform everything he promises to perform. Men who do not need armor and swords to fight against impossible odds, but with childlike faith go out to meet the behemoth with nothing but a satchel full of real, honest-to-goodness faith. The return of ruddy shepherd boys. The four ingredients of the extraordinary story. So we're going to talk about an extraordinary story. However, when I first start talking, you're going to be thinking David, Goliath. And that's okay, because that's what I'm talking about. However, I want you to always realize that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And it points to the cross. That's the high hill. All the Old Testament leads up to it. It's constantly pointing to it, directing everything to it, that you would see it, that you would know it. He is the answer. He is the Messiah. And that work on the cross is a lone means of salvation. And then everything in the New Testament flows out of it. That resurrection flows out of that death. That ascension flows out of that resurrection which came from that death. 
that outpoured spirit at Pentecost flows out of that death, which then initiated the resurrection, which initiated the ascension, which then the Father said yes, and out flowed the Holy Spirit into the lives of men and women on this earth. You see, it all flows down like a river from that high hill. So the four ingredients of the extraordinary story. So listen closely. The place of a famous tree. Now, when you hear about David and Goliath, you're thinking, a tree? There's no tree in that story. Well, you don't know the story well enough. The Valley of Elah means the Valley of the Great Tree. You didn't know that? There's a huge tree in the midst of that valley. Uh-huh. So it's the place of the Great Tree. So that's, that's one of the ingredients for the story. You have to have a tree. Uh, see, are you guys linking this with the cross? Don't miss it. I'm going out of my way to help you link it. It involves the preparations of a young boy from Bethlehem, Judah. And there's always the boasting of a giant included in the great story. And five smooth stones. And you're thinking that the cross, you're like, what? I cannot think of five smooth stones. Well, symbolically. The storyline of the kingdom. The ordinary everyday kid that proves the unlikely hero and changes the course of history. I mean, we've spent a lot of money going to movies just to get that story. That's the story we all love. Where did it come from? It came from the Bible. God invented that story. This is his story. The unlikely hero. The eighth son of Jesse, delivering bread and cheese who turns out to be the great hero. That is the ultimate story. Well, that's the story of the gospel. All throughout the Bible, that's the story. So the vision of Ellerslie, what are we doing here? Well, we talked about the return of Irish, the Irish elk. That's banquet night. So going all the way back to the beginning of Ellerslie when all these students arrived, we talked about the return of the Irish elk. That's different than an Estes Park elk, you know, up in the mountains here in Colorado. You know, the, the Estes Park elk are quite amazing. I mean, they truly are. I mean, if, if we were standing here, I mean, the rack of antlers could be up here. You're like, wow, look at that. They're a majestic creature. An Irish elk is completely different. It stands at its brow 10 feet high. At its brow, 10 feet, it's the height of a basketball hoop, and then from there is its true crowning jewel. It holds a rack of antlers upon its head that spans 12 feet and goes up an additional 5 feet. The top of the Irish elk's antlers is 15 feet high, sprawling. That's like laying Goliath sideways just on top of his head. And I would say... What we are doing here at Ellerslie is we are catching a vision for the return of majesty to the church of Jesus Christ afresh. You see, most of us are esteeming little elk in Estes Park. Wow, did you see that? We'll stop our car and say, whoa. And the same is true with modern Christianity. What we've seen is good. We have seen some amazing men and women in this generation. They still exist. However, they're Estes Park elk. We want to see the return of the full glory to Jesus Christ, where the church is the church triumphant once again. The reemergence of the mighty men of old. The formation of Hudson Taylors and Amy Carmichaels. That's the way I've always said it. We, we, there used to be a, uh, what, what was that little gazebo that was out here, and Leslie and I would come over and always be praying for this property. We couldn't get inside of it. We were sneaking on. It was for sale. Uh, but, so we'd sneak on and go into the gazebo and pray, and I'd stare at this building, and I remember my prayer. Lord Jesus, in that building, may you raise up this next generation's Amy Carmichael's and Hudson Taylor's. The return of the faithful, fearless, immovable, unstoppable church. That's what we want. And so I have one more thing to add to it. We'll call it the planting of the terebinth. A terebinth is not a term that many of us know, but it is 
a massive oak tree known in Israel. And so the terebinth is referred to in scripture quite a bit. And so if we are going to see discipleship truly take place, we're not just discipling and planting little twigs and then they grow up and produce a little flower. And we're like, yay! We want to see the return of the mighty terebinth to Israel. And so when you start getting a vision for the mighty trees of Israel, you'll understand what I mean. So let me introduce you to a terebinth. It's called a mighty tree, often referred to as an oak, impervious to all weather. It doesn't matter what weather you bring against it. The, more, the worse the weather, the stronger the oak gets. So it's impervious to all weather. It's immovable. You don't just pick these things up and transplant them, by the way. They're bearing, and they bear a striking appearance. The great terebinth measure between 17 and 23 feet in circumference. And the Jews believe them to have been around since creation, terming them Ojidian, or almighty gigantic from the very beginning. They don't know the beginning of these trees. So as far as they reason, they're a symbol of Jehovah God in the midst of their land. And so when they see these great trees, they stand in awe of the Ojidian. They symbolize the Almighty. You see, when trees are planted properly, they grow up to be impervious to all weather, immovable, and bear a striking appearance that actually demonstrates the glory of God to this earth. That's what I want to see return to the stage of time. Ojidian, Terebinth. Men and women who grow up, no matter what comes against them, no matter what weather they endure, it makes them stronger. And they bear a striking resemblance to the king of kings. The terebinth was an emblem of both strength and durability. For a terebinth to become a terebinth, it must be planted well, rooted deep, and grounded in the soil to such an extent that it will not and cannot be moved forever. Isaiah 61 talks about the terebinth. Now what you're going to notice is this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He gets up in front of the congregation and reads What does he read? He reads this. And this, in the context, is the context for the return of the terebinth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called. Okay, so all of that is the work of the cross. Jesus himself, even at the beginning of his ministry, acknowledges that's him. That's his ministry. Why? What's it for? That they might be called terebinth, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified, that they shall build the old wastes that they shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. O Lord God, may it be. May the work of our great Messiah be realized in our day, in our generation. The planting of the Lord, a brief study in the planting of trees. When trees are first planted, there is an establishment period lasting at least two years when intensive maintenance is required. What does that have to do with us? This is called discipleship. It's a planting of the Lord. It is not something that Eric Ludi can pull off. I can't plant you in Christ Jesus. I can't plant you in the soil of truth. It's the work of the Spirit of God who has prepared you, and then he uses vessels. He can use my life to be a part of the process, but I can't plant you, and I can't make you grow. I can only pour water on. I can only give that which God gives me. But discipleship 
is very similar to a tree. A tree, when it's first planted, is very vulnerable. There's a two-year span of time when that tree is extra vulnerable, and we must know it. If you're an arborist or you work with trees, you know these things to be true. So what do you do? You put little guards about them. You put posts up and tie it to them because weather can tip them over. They're extra sensitive to bugs and diseases. And so as a result, you have to be extra protective around a young tree. New plantings also require frequent inspections and intensive care to maintain them through the critical establishment period. In order to achieve these goals, a program of monitoring, soil treatments, and pest management is required. I think we need the same thing. We need a program of monitoring, soil treatments, and pest management. Pest management. Does that sound like our young life as Christians or what? And then some of you are like, our old life too. We got some serious pests that are seeking to devour us. The planting program, two years of watchfulness and care. You know, out of this very concept is where we've developed our practicum program, which is two years. It's based on that exact same concept of just saying, not everyone can even go through nine weeks. This is a very difficult thing in our busy culture, is to even step away for nine weeks, let alone two years, let alone four years, or whatever the training might be. And so at Ellerslie, our desire isn't to try and be all things, but to allow the Spirit of God to do His work, but to do what we can to help people where they're able to take a step away from life and be able to focus. So, what's the two years? Monitoring, soil treatments, pest management. New plantings are very fragile and can decline and die rapidly due to environmental stress or pest infestations. Sounds like spiritual life. Frequent inspections are essential to detect subtle changes in plant health and pest infestations. So what we're going to liken is that young planting in Scripture would be referred to as a novice. So when a plant is being established, it just needs to recognize it's in an establishment period. If it establishes well and it roots deep, guess what? It will be able to endure any winds, any rains, any storms, any pests even. It can endure great difficulty when it is established well and its roots take good hold. So where do we get this novice principle in Scripture? Well, here's Paul talking with Timothy. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre. So we're putting people over the church. These are the ones that are going to protect the church. They're like shepherds. That's exactly the concept here. So we're dealing with those that are the protectors. Those are the watch cares of the local body. So Timothy is being given by Paul a description of what to look for. This is their basic character. This is the basic behavior. But he's going to add to that. But patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules his, well his own house. In other words, there's a certain proving that's involved. Show, have him show behavior before all. How he rules his own house is the pattern by which he'll rule the church. So if he doesn't rule his own house well, he's not fit to rule the church of Jesus Christ. So it says, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. That means reverence. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Simple, logical statement. So if the guy's failing in this zone, then he's not fit for this one, because this is only an increase. For instance, I would say the same thing. If someone came up to me and said, yeah, I really want to get married. I'd say, are you ruling your own mind well? Are you ruling your own life well? Are you ruling your own body well? You see, if the power of the Spirit has not invaded that territory, then you're not yet fit to run a marriage, to lead in a marriage. So let's start with first things first. 
And then if someone is handling their marriage well, they're going to be excellent in their family life. If they're excellent in their family life, guess what? We got a great fit to lead the church of Jesus Christ. However, if they're failing in the smaller things, then don't put them over the bigger things. This is the principle of the novice. There's nothing wrong is if a life is failing, it doesn't mean we throw it out. It just means it needs to walk through a process of being established. Its roots need to sink deep and get a grip so that our life is producing good fruit as opposed to that fruit over there, which the enemy gets you know, a whole bunch of credit for. We don't want to bear fruit that gives the enemy glory. We want to bear fruit that gives Jesus Christ glory. So this is in Paul's argument. This is the next line. Don't pick a novice. In other words, what I'm saying to you, Timothy, says Paul, is don't pick a novice. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Well, that's a strange reasoning. In other words, what Paul is saying is there's a simple principle to young believers. They are extra susceptible to pest infestation. And so as a result, just know that the pest that most likely will get a grip on young disciples is called pride. The very thing that distorted and disturbed and destroyed the devil is the very thing that wants to get a hold of young disciples. If we know that in the church, then we are more watchful for how we establish people in position. You see, there are people that can sing really well. They can play the guitar. So oftentimes we'll stick them right on a stage and give them a position of influence because they have talent. However, the character of their life has not yet been proven. And so what happens is they stumble over pride and that which could have just been groomed properly actually is lost in the very beginning. How we grow people up is very, very important in the church of Jesus Christ. How we release people unto positions of influence and increase their jurisdictional powers is very, very important. So moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. So there's a key line here. We're going to talk about how first, before someone is put over the church of Jesus Christ, whether it be a bishop or a deacon, they first must be proven. If someone is not proven, then don't, don't stick them in a position of influence. Well, this is just how Christianity works. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So listen to Proverbs, because all throughout the Bible, it actually references giving people position or sending them forth into leadership or influential positions too early. He that sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off the feet and drinks damage. The legs of the lame are not equal. So is a parable in the mouth of fools. As he that binds a stone in a sling, so is he that gives honor to a fool. The process of Christianity is taking fools and seeing them established in wisdom. And so it's the book of Proverbs. Basically, there's two in Proverbs. You have the fool and you have the wise. Firstborn, secondborn. We're not looking for any more foolishness in the church of Jesus Christ. And so what needs to be removed is the foolishness. The foolishness that all of us have an uncanny attraction to. In our firstborn life, when we are living in the descendancy of Adam, and we have not been born anew, we have a tendency to carry around that old behavior. And... That old behavior doesn't fit in the church of Jesus Christ. And so what we need to see is a work of grace to see that old behavior cease and a new behavior begin. 
And when that new behavior has proven itself, well, guess what? This young one is ready to lead. Sending a fool with the gospel message. And unfortunately, we do a lot of this uh, today. Under the banner, some of it's even good-hearted. In other words, you've been changed, go out and share. And that's actually a part truth. In other words, we should be delivering the gospel in any way we have and have opportunity when we are changed by the gospel. That's a truth. However, to give formal position of teaching in the church, leadership in the church is different. And so as a result, there needs to be a hesitancy. Someone can go out and begin to share the love of Jesus and the truth that they have. However, to do it in a formal way where it is representing the church of Jesus Christ is one of those things we need to be watchful of. He that sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off the feet and drinks damage. Don't proclaim someone ready unless he's been proven. Let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon. As he that binds a stone in a sling, so is he that gives honor to a fool. So when you elevate someone in the church of Jesus Christ too quick, what you're doing in his essence is giving honor to a fool. And that's the equivalent of binding a stone in a sling. In other words, Rocks are going to start flying around the church, and people might get hurt. So in, Tim, in the book of 1 Timothy, we see Paul saying the same thing. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Now, to many of us, laying hands doesn't actually make any sense, so it doesn't really register what he's talking about. But that's the concept of giving people authority in the church. That's transferred in and through the eldership, laying hands on someone and giving them authority. Okay, so what the commission is to Timothy is do not lay hands suddenly on anyone. Neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. This is actually a very serious issue in the body of Christ. And so when we give people authority in the church of Jesus Christ too quickly, what we're doing is we're partaking in sins that that person still may be lugging in. And now the church becomes vulnerable to that sin as opposed to allowing that person a season of getting rooted, getting established, and seeing that stuff thrown off their life, and now they can come in and enter into the position of ministry with strength and health. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Is that something we need to heed? I mean, that's like old school Christianity. Back in the day, they had false prophets. We don't have that stuff today, do we? You see, this is a commission to us. We are to actually test every spirit. We're not to believe every spirit. We're supposed to test them. Well, how do we test a spirit? What's what's that? Against the word of God. You see, Paul has given us the word of God so that we can test people against it. That's how we do it. That's how we make our decisions. It's not my random feelings on the situation. I have a test. The spirit of God is making it clear to me how I can test every spirit. Why? Because the spirit of God is in agreement with the word of God. The spirit of God only takes from that which belongs to Christ, which is the word of God. And so when he's going to teach me as a leader how to test every spirit, he's going to use the word of God to do it. It doesn't mean discernment doesn't exist in the process. Discernment is part of the process. The proving. So this proving process sounds a little intimidating, Uh, And yet, it is one of the most essential ingredients to a protected body. The proving. How does he or she fare in the cocoon of anonymity? One of the number one tests that anyone could pass or anyone could go through is what we could call the cocoon of anonymity. I have another term that I've used for years called the cocoon of innocence. And the cocoon of innocence is what a parent that has a young child basically creates for their child 
to protect them from anything that is not necessarily supposed to be influencing them yet. You know, there's a lot of dark and devious things in this world. Many of you have figured that out. And yet a young child is meant to be protected from that for a season of their life, but they need to be made ready to actually engage this world full of all that deviousness and deceit. So how how do you do that? Well, I call it the cocoon of innocence. A caterpillar needs to gain wings to fly so that that butterfly is not going to be in the dirt anymore. And so what God seems to have created is this metamorphosis season where a child can enter into a cocoon protected by the parents and be growing something known as wings. We're going to call those wings purity. Purity is not ignorance and it's not just innocence. Innocence is a part of purity. In other words, that you are not touched by that, so you're not guilty by the stain of it anymore. But a lot of us think that purity means ignorance of evil. That's not what it means. Purity means full knowledge of the deceit, the deceptiveness of the enemy, the lies, uh, the, the horror of the flesh and all that, and yet choosing is a matter of will to not touch it. That's purity. Okay, so how do you prepare a child for purity? You need to protect them in a cocoon of innocence and allow those wings to unfurl and to fully develop. And then at a certain time in every child's life, a parent discerns it, And they say, it's time to come forth. And as a parent, you don't abandon them and just turn them over to the wiles of the world. However, that's part of the process. And so I'm going to use the term cocoon of anonymity. It's the same thing. In the church, how do we make people ready where they don't stumble over pride, where they don't trip up as a novice and begin to take on too much too early, where they begin to think too highly of themselves, but where they constantly maintain a dependency upon the spirit of grace and recognize that in their pockets they have nothing. Anything they have to give that would at all be beneficial to the body of Christ comes from above. How do you train that? Well, we'll call it the cocoon of anonymity. When someone is willing in the church of Jesus Christ to enter into a low position and to serve unnoticed for a season of their life, not complain, but to rejoice, and to actually come to the point where they don't even want to be removed from the shadows. They prefer it here. Suddenly you have yourself a leader. You know the best leaders are the ones that don't want to be the leaders? Now you really want them to lead you. You know, it's like Moses. Moses thought he was ready to save the people of Egypt. I'm sorry, the people of Israel from Egypt. And so he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then he's exposed. He flees into the wilderness. Forty years of being proven. After the 40 years are completed, on the first day of the 41st year, he runs into a burning bush, and God commissions him and says, you're ready. And what does Moses say? No. Could I stay in the shadows? I don't want to do that work. I'm not fit for that work. He says, now now you're fit because you're not leaning on your own ability now. He says, I can't even speak. I need someone to speak for me. By the way, Moses was one of the most eloquent, one of the most amazing, most powerful men in history. We We only know what's in the Bible. However, Josephus gives us the whole background on his days in Egypt. He was a mighty conqueror. I mean, of the Ethiopians. He was the great conqueror. He's like an Alexander the Great or Napoleon in his day. Yeah, this man lost all confidence in himself. God had built him to lead, but he had to lose that itch, that itch for him to be the answer. That's when a man is fit to lead. So the proving, how does she or he, how are he or she fare in the cocoon of anonymity? Novitionary training, embracing the shepherd duties with joy. Shepherding, yuck. Shepherding is not a fun or easy task. It's a stinky job, 
And back in ancient Israel, it was the lowly of lowly jobs. So Jesse's family, Jesse's the father of David. Jesse is a sheep herding man. And so his oldest son gets the job. And then the greatest desire of every son is to have another son born. Why? So that that second son can go out and take care of the sheep. And so this job of sheep herding has been passed down through Jesse's family. And guess who's the final son? David. David's the shepherd. Poor guy. You see, this isn't a high and lofty position. This is the lowly of low positions. So, novitionary training. When we're the novice, we need to embrace the shepherd duties with joy. This is part of our preparation. If we are unwilling to receive the shepherding duties, we are not fit to be the king. You see, the leader of people needs to first be the shepherd. This is how the kingdom works. I know this isn't how the world works. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how the kingdom of heaven works. Shepherd first, then king. If you're not a shepherd, you're not fit to be a great king. Shepherds, the lowly and most miserable occupation. Listen to this. Smith's Bible Dictionary. In Israel, the shepherd held a subordinate position. The office of the eastern shepherd was attended with much hardship and even danger. He was exposed to the extremes of heat and cold. His food frequently consisted of the precarious supplies afforded by nature, such as locusts and wild honey. He had to encounter the attacks of wild beasts, occasionally of the larger species, such as lions, panthers, and bears. Nor was he free from the risks of robbers or predator hordes. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys, for giving me this job. This guy's exposed to wind, rain. They oftentimes lived in caves. I mean, every description of this would be Hebrews 11. All the people that are suffering loss out of faith in Jesus Christ. It's really amazing. These guys lived in caves. They risked their life to protect sheep. Come on, are these sheep really that valuable? A shepherd had to love his sheep well, otherwise he wasn't a good shepherd. And so a good shepherd had to accept the low position and had to give his all in it. Otherwise, he's not a good shepherd. And if you're not a good shepherd, you're not fit to lead the kingdom of Israel. Shepherding. We'll call it the occupation of the second man. And she again bare his brother Abel. So Cain was, or Abel was the second born. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cain cannot please God. His offering is not pleasing. You cannot please God from the offering of the flesh. Unless you are born again. You cannot please God. Well, the second born, what's his occupation? A shepherd. You see, if you're going to be the second born, are you willing to accept the occupation that comes with it? It's a shepherd. So stop fighting it, Church of Jesus Christ. Let's all just accept it. We all must be called shepherds. But that's a, that's a lowly occupation. You have to risk your life to be a shepherd. Yeah, but you can offer a sacrifice that is pleasing. Shepherding. It's despicable to those that are earthen ruddy. You see, when we talk about the world, usually the symbol is Egypt. And so listen to this. Listen to how the Egyptians view shepherds, and you'll get a whole new idea of how we as Christians are viewed. That you shall say, this is uh, Joseph talking to uh, his dad and brothers, thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Listen to this statement. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. And it's an abomination to us. We don't want this job description. No, thank you. Do you want to be a Christian or not? Because this is the occupation of the second born. We're willing to stand up and lay down our life for the weak around us. Simply put. 
we do the work of the king and we're willing to do it in hiding. You know, the shepherds didn't get a lot of applause. All they got was a lot of spittle on the cheek. The shepherd king, uh uh-huh, that's right. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd that laid down his life for his sheep. You see, Jesus is a great king and he modeled how to be a great leader because he was a shepherd. So the leadership principle that we get out of session one, to be a great king, one must first be a great shepherd. That's how we grow in the kingdom of heaven. If you're unwilling to be the great shepherd, then you're not going to be a great leader. So if you want to be a great influencer of men and women on this earth, accept the job description. It's lowly. Accept the cocoon of anonymity for whatever season God puts you in it and rest there and be there until you start rejoicing in it and actually don't even want out. And then God immediately, right at that point, cracks open the cocoon and says, fly. Fly, little butterfly. So we're in the world, but we're not in the dirt of it. You see, we're meant to be in this world, but not in the dirt. We're meant to be butterflies, not caterpillars. But are we willing to enter into the metamorphosis that the Spirit of God wants to bring into our life to give us wings to fly? So, to be a great king, one must first be a great shepherd. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.